The following is a recording of Pastor Doug Landrum of Grace Bible Church, preaching on Mark 1, 14-20, on April 25th, 2021. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you some very good news tonight. The King has come. And when the King came, He went straight into the realm of the usurper, Satan, and entered into the wilderness. You might remember that in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, Jesus the King shows up to a coronation. And when He is baptized, He's proclaimed as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Listen to Mark 1, uh, sorry, Mark uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 8 and 9, where He's baptized And it says, the Spirit of God came down upon him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And when he was baptized, it was him identifying himself not only as the Christ and the Son of God, but identifying himself with his people and accepting the mission to bear their judgment, which they deserved, not him. And immediately as he is anointed by the Spirit, the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, into the very realm of Satan, further into the wilderness, into isolation. And listen, you remember the way that Mark depicts the wilderness. Listen to Mark 1, 13. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Mark says, do you want to know what the world is like under the sway of the evil one? It's a place of danger. It's a place of loneliness. It's a place of horror where wild beasts are. And Mark wants you to see that this is actually what's behind everything that Jesus does in the ministry. Every part of Jesus' life and ministry for the next 16 chapters of Mark's book is like him being in the wilderness facing the realm of Satan in this constant test and cosmic battle. But Jesus wants us to know what His ministry is about from the very beginning. So He goes right to the the, the teeth of the enemy's lair. He goes right into the front door of Satan and says in effect this, this is my house, you've been a squatter for too long. And He begins about the business, watch this, of bringing the kingdom, glimpses of the kingdom, into the realm of the usurper. And here's what Mark wants to do. In the first 13 verses of of, of Mark, this was called the prologue, he's told you who Jesus is. He says he's the Christ. He's the Son of God. And having clarified who he is, now he wants to clarify what he came to do. What is he doing in his ministry? So he says this in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Now after John had been arrested... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. For the next eight chapters, Mark is going to deal with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And he says, before we even start dealing with his ministry, I want to tell you what his ministry is all about. Here's the summary of Jesus' ministry. Jesus the King has come to bring the kingdom into the realm of the usurper. He is bringing the kingdom to earth under the sway of the evil one, and he is saying, this is my house, and I'm coming back to reclaim it. 
I want you to know that's good news. He's giving us four tastes of the spring, which will one day swallow up the winter curse. Now, it's important to have a little bit of context here for the passage we're going to study tonight. You guys know if you've been reading through Mark, and I would encourage you, if you, if you haven't been as a family reading through the Gospel of Mark together, take some time to do that. Read through it together as a family. Read through it personally. What you're going to find is that Mark has this really fast-moving and direct approach. In fact, all over the book it says immediately, 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 immediately. So we're not surprised to know that Mark skips out on some details that you get in the other Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John. And actually between verses 13 and 14, there's about a year gap that Mark doesn't talk about. If you read in the Gospel of John, uh, you go from, you know, Jesus who is sort of has a ministry that's overlapping with John in Jerusalem. Some of John's disciples follow Jesus. Then you get to John 2, and it's the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And then Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, cleansing the temple. Then you have Jesus with Nicodemus, and later John the Baptist talking about he must increase, I must decrease. And then Jesus decides to go north. But you remember in John 4, he says, I've got to go to Galilee, but I must pass through Samaria. Because he's got an appointment. There's an appointment with a woman at a well in Sychar, Samaria, at the well of Jacob. We're going to talk about her in just, in just a little bit. But once he gets done with that appointment, he goes north to Galilee, and that's where Mark picks up. So he goes from the baptism to about a year later, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Now, you might also recognize that uh, Mark doesn't spend any time telling you about the imprisonment of John the Baptist here. He's going to tell you about it later in Mark chapter 6. But he doesn't give you a whole lot of detail about it now, because all he wants to do with John the Baptist's imprisonment is use it as a timestamp to orient you on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He says, John got arrested, then Jesus started ministering in Galilee. But here's what I want you to realize. When Mark puts these two things together, John the Baptist gets arrested, Jesus goes to Galilee, he wants you to see something. Because Jesus goes to the very region that was ruled by the guy who imprisoned John the Baptist. Don't miss that. Jesus goes to the very region ruled by Herod Antipas, who was the guy who imprisoned John the Baptist. Now, Herod finds out Jesus is there. He's pretty upset about it. In fact, he thinks maybe John the Baptist has risen from the dead. But Jesus goes there, and then he even seems to call out Herod. Listen to what he says in the region of Herod. Mark 8, 15. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. You say, why is that important? Because Jesus did not fear men. He goes to the place where the guy who was his herald gets arrested, and he says, beware of his leaven. And he also didn't care at all about human praise, which is why he spends the majority of his ministry in Galilee and not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the religious capital. Jerusalem is where all the bigwigs are. But all Jesus is going to get in Jerusalem is rejection. He spends the majority of his ministry in Galilee. Listen to what R.T. France said about this. He said, the kingdom of God comes not with fanfare, but through the gradual gathering of a group of socially insignificant people in an unnoticed corner of provincial Galilee. You say, why is that important? Because the back half of the passage we're going to study tonight is when Jesus calls his disciples. Jesus is bringing the kingdom in a place that is unrecognized, unknown 
off the beaten path, outsider place. And when he calls people to follow him, he's calling them to follow the king knowing there will be no recognition for them. There will be no notice for them. They're going to be called to a place where they'll be considered as outsiders. I want you to hear this tonight because I think this is really important. Mark doesn't just want to show us how Jesus the King is bringing the kingdom. He's calling for a response. He's saying, not only I want you to see Jesus bringing the kingdom, this is His whole ministry, He's saying, will you follow the King? And listen, if you do, what does that mean for you, given that Jesus brought the kingdom in a place like Galilee? So, here's what I want to do. If you're taking notes, you're the note-taking type, I want you to write down two things. One is revealing the kingdom, and the other is responding to the king. Revealing the kingdom and responding to the king. The first thing that I want to do is I want to show us how Jesus' entire ministry, and particularly in Galilee, was bringing the kingdom into the realm of the usurper. Mark summarizes his ministry again in Mark 1, 14 to 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying the kingdom is here because the king is here. And here's what I want, to, here's what I want to show you. I want to show you six glimpses of Jesus bringing the kingdom in his ministry. And I want you to see this in Mark chapters 1 to 8. And we'll, we'll fly through these. Okay, but six glimpses of Jesus bringing the kingdom into the realm of the usurper because this was what he came to do. So number one, when Jesus the king arrived, it was good news because the kingdom was brought near finally. When Jesus the king arrived, it was good news because the kingdom was brought near finally. Listen to Mark 1.15 again. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. One of the, one of the enduring images that we see in the Old Testament is that of exile. I want you to get this in your mind. Exile. This happens all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, this is what we see in the very beginning after Adam and Eve sinned. After God had given them promise and curse, then there was a pronouncement of exile. Listen to this in Genesis 3.24. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. When they sinned, they were banished from God's kingly rule. This was paradise. They lost the kingdom. And from this point on, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, exile is what we see over and over and over again, far off from the kingdom of God. Think about it. The people of God are slaves outside of the promised land in the Exodus. Then they're brought out. Everybody 20 years and older dies in the wilderness without entering the promised land. Then the next generation goes in, and eventually the entire prophetic period is given to talking about how the people of God will be exiles again. Israel in 722 B.C. in Assyria, 586 for Judah into Babylon. It's exile, 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 exile outside the kingdom of God. And the people are waiting for the restoration. They're waiting for the kingdom to be brought near. They're waiting for the time to be fulfilled. And Jesus comes, and listen to what he says in Luke 17, 20 and 21. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, 
nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He says, I am the king, and wherever the king is, the kingdom is. The kingdom was brought near finally, and that's good news. And listen, if you're a follower of the king, the kingdom is as near as faith in Christ because he's put it in you. When the king comes, it's good news because he brought the kingdom near. Number two, when Jesus the king came, it was good news because evil was eradicated. In the kingdom, evil is eradicated. And Jesus gives us a foretaste of this when he casts out demons. The first thing we see Jesus doing after he calls his disciples in Mark chapter 1 is that he starts casting out demons in Mark 1, 21 to 28. In Mark 3, 11, we see the, the authority of Jesus the king over the demonic realm. Listen to what the demons say about Jesus. Mark 3, 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. Demons screaming, you're the son of God. Mark depicts Jesus as the strong one, or the one who binds the strong man through his redemptive work. Jesus is casting out demons. And they say, hey, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus responds with this in Mark 3, 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 26, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. But he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Jesus says, I'm coming into the strong man's house, I'm binding him, and I'm plundering his property because my people don't belong to you. Jesus shows his authority over the demonic realm in Mark 5 when he takes the garrison demoniac and casts demons out of him. And did you notice that in Mark 5, 11 to 12, they literally ask Jesus permission for where to go? Where should we go? Demons asking Jesus for permission. This is a foretaste of what we will experience one day, what will be the reality for us. One day we will live in a kingdom where there absolutely is no evil and there won't be demons going into a, into a sea, there will be the devil going into a lake. Listen to Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Jesus comes into the usurper's kingdom and says, let me show you what the kingdom will be like one day. No more evil. And Martin Luther wrote a song called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Maybe you've heard it. And he said, And though this world with devils filled should, with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. Number three, when Jesus... The king came, it was good news because in the kingdom, creation is restored under his authority. Jesus gives us a foretaste of this when he calms the storm. You remember, he's asleep in the boat and the disciples are losing it and they say, are you asleep? We're about to die. And he comes out and he says, be still. And everything calms down. And in Mark 4, 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that the wind and the sea obey him? Creation knows the voice of its creator, 
Jesus manifests His kingly authority. You remember when He comes out to them walking on the water because creation is subservient to Him. This is a foretaste of creation under His authority. And you guys remember the way that Mark depicts creation under Satan's sway. It's a place where wild beasts are gathered. Paul tells us that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And listen, when Jesus shows His authority over creation, He gives you a glimpse of what it will be like one day when it won't be wild beasts, it will be Isaiah 65, 25, where He says, the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. He says, that will be your reality one day. Let me give you a glimpse of what it's like now. Number four, when Jesus the King came, it was good news because in the kingdom there's no more need. Jesus gives you a foretaste of what this will be like by multiplying food for the 5,000 in Mark 6 and for the 4,000 in Mark 8. The only thing greater, I love this, the only thing greater than our need is His ability to supply. And one day, in the kingdom of God, His supply will eradicate need forever. Which is why you have this picture in Revelation 22, 1-2. Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Don't you long for a day when there is no more need? If you look at the world scene, the need is overwhelming. Kids dying from starvation every single day around the world. Or preventable disease. And Jesus gives you a glimpse of what it will be like when He multiplies His supply for the needy people. And He says, one day in the kingdom there will be no more need. I'm bringing the kingdom of God to earth. Number five. When Jesus the King came, it was good news because in the kingdom there is no more disease and there is no more death. Jesus gives us a foretaste of this reality when He heals the sick and when He raises the dead. Just a quick overview of Mark from 1 to 8 and you see Jesus healing people everywhere. Mark 1, 29 to 34, He's healing the multitudes. Listen to how expansive this is in Mark 1, 32 to 33. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. Watch this. And the whole city had gathered at the door. In Mark 1.41, you have a leper who nobody was even supposed to be near. And he comes to Jesus and he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him. He says, I'm willing. Be cleansed. In Mark chapter 2, 1-12, we see the healing of a paralytic man who's lowered through a roof. In Mark 3, 1-6, it's Jesus, with a, uh, the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. In Mark 5, 21-42, it's Jesus on the way to heal Jairus' daughter, and the woman with an issue of blood touches him. She's healed. He misses healing Jairus' daughter, so he just reverses death. In Mark chapter 6, 
Mark tells us that wherever he entered, he, he was brought the sick and the dying. Listen to Mark 6, 56. Wherever he entered, villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many touched it, were being cured. In Mark chapter 7, he heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and opens a deaf man's ears. And listen to what they say about him in Mark 7.37. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And this reminds us, listen, of Exodus 4.11, where Moses says, I can't go speak. God, I don't speak well. And God comes back to him and says, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Didn't I make the mouth? Didn't I make the ears? Didn't I make the eyes? Don't I make mute or deaf? So if I want to reverse it, I do because I'm God. That's Jesus showing His authority. And listen, Jesus says one day you will live in a place where there will no longer be any disease and there will no longer be any death. I've given you foretaste, but listen to the reality itself which is coming. Revelation 21, 3-4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people. And God Himself will be among them, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And Revelation 22.3 says there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him. He says, I'm giving you a foretaste of what there will be one day in a world with no disease and no death. Number six, and most importantly, when Jesus the King came, it was good news because in the kingdom, rebels can be pardoned and welcomed as kingdom citizens. Listen, you can't miss this. Jesus is giving us glimpses of the kingdom, hints of the kingdom, foretastes of the kingdom all throughout His ministry. But the heart of His ministry was preaching. God, as it has been said, has one Son and He was a preacher. Listen to Mark 1.14 and 15 again and listen to how Mark summarizes His ministry. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and saying, saying, the time is fulfilled and the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. One commentator said it like this, this drawing of people into the Kingdom of God was the whole purpose of Jesus' ministry. And that is why preaching the good news, not healing or driving out demons, lay at the heart of His ministry. I want you to hear this. The heart of His ministry was preaching the Gospel of God. This is why, even amidst healing so many, Jesus says, I can't stay here. I've got to go other places and preach the Gospel. Listen to Mark 1.35. It's early in the morning. It's still dark. Jesus gets up. He goes to a secluded place. He prays there. Simon and his companions come and they start looking for Him. They found Him. They said to Him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. And He went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee preaching and casting out the demons. 
You read the same thing in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus stands in the synagogue at Nazareth and they hand Him the scroll of Isaiah and He opens it up and He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for He's anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor. In Mark chapter 2, listen, when Jesus heals the paralytic, He doesn't just heal him physically. He heals him eternally. He looks at the man and He says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, nobody can forgive sins but God alone. He says, let me ask you, what's easier for me to say? Get up and walk or tell you that your sins are forgiven so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? Because the business, the main business of the kingdom is not simply to see people healed physically. It's to see people saved eternally. Which is why John Piper says this, we care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Why preaching at the heart of His ministry? Because preaching is the means by which God saves. Romans 10.13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. For someone to be in the kingdom, their biggest problem is not disease. Their biggest problem is not hunger. Their biggest problem is not death. Their biggest problem, physical death. Their biggest problem is not even satanic oppression. Those are all stem issues. The root issue is their sin. They must be forgiven. And Jesus comes proclaiming that enemies of the state can be made friends by the blood of the King's cross. Don't miss when Jesus goes out to John and He's saying, here's a baptism that represents your desire to repent and be forgiven of your sins. And Jesus says, baptize me because their repentance and trust in me won't lead to forgiveness unless I die for them. It is through preaching the cross that the kingdom is established in the heart of sinners. Listen, Jesus is giving you glimpses of the kingdom externally. Casting out demons, people being sick that they're sick and they were healed. He's, he's dealing with hunger. But there's only one way to get the kingdom of God in somebody, and that's by preaching the cross so that they might repent and believe. And the kingdom is set up in them. And when the kingdom of God comes to us, we become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And what is new in us, this foretaste, will one day be the only reality we know. Because he says in Revelation 21.5, He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The newness in you will one day be the newness that you see all around you. But I want you to know that this is only available if we come on the King's terms. He says in Mark 1.15 the following, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Repent means that you turn from something that you trusted in, namely yourself. And you turn and you embrace Jesus in a full commitment to Him. Do you want to be a citizen of the kingdom? Here are the entry requirements. 
turn from your rebellion and give complete allegiance to the king. The king has made terms of peace for anyone, any rebel fighting in the usurper's army. He says, bring your white flag to the gate of the kingdom and throw yourself on the mercy of the king and you will find pardon and you will find blessing and you will find membership in the kingdom of God. But you must come his way. What is Jesus' ministry all about? It's about bringing the kingdom of God and at the heart of it, it is preaching the gospel so that we might enter into the kingdom of God. Now, If you haven't listened to any of that, please listen now. Because Jesus doesn't want us to be confused. I want you to know there are so many people who say, I believe in Jesus. If you go out into the community and you ask them, do you believe in Jesus? The answer you will get from the large majority of people here and in our city will be yes. But he doesn't want us to be confused about what it looks like to repent and believe. So right after telling you what Jesus came to do in bringing the kingdom, he says, let me show you what repentance and faith truly looks like. And he goes to the disciples and he calls them. If you want to know what repentance and faith truly looks like, look at how these men responded to the king when he called them. A guy named Grasmick said this, He said, Jesus' call of four fishermen, two pairs of brothers to be his followers, comes immediately after the summary of his message. So Mark made clear that to repent and believe in the gospel is to break with one's old way of life and to follow Jesus, to make a personal commitment to him in response to his call. Discipleship is the expected norm for all who believe the gospel. What does it look like to repent and believe? Please look at these men and ask yourself the question, is that me? Is that me? Is that me? Number one, repenting and believing looks like leaving your old life. When we meet Simon and Andrew and James and John, what we discover is they're fishermen. In fact, if you read in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, we find out they actually have a business together. They're business partners. Now, don't get the idea that these are like poor, pauperly fishermen. These are people who have a thriving business. In fact, Mark 1.20 says they had such a thriving business that they had hired servants. What is the response when they have a thriving business, tons of responsibility, when the king shows up? Mark 1.18, immediately... They left their nets, and they followed him. Listen, because given the significance of this king and the kingdom he was bringing to earth, no other prior claim was even comparable. Please, hear this. No other claim on their life compared to this king who has come to call me. One commentator said they left behind their old way of life, fishing boat and nets and prior claims, and followed him as disciples. And maybe you're thinking, well, does this mean that Jesus wants me to leave my job in order to follow him? No, unless he calls you to that. But actually, what this means is far more comprehensive than that. It means if you want to follow Jesus, true repentance and belief looks like putting your whole life on the table and saying, it's all yours. Take 
all of it. Call me to whatever you want me to do. If you want me to leave whatever, I'm leaving it. And if you leave me in the station of life where I am, then it's all for you. Tim Keller said it this way, Jesus says, I want you to follow me so fully, so intensely, so enduringly that all other attachments in your life look weak by comparison. Now, I want you to know it is easy to hear that. It is much harder to apply it. I want to ask you right now, would you be willing to say to Jesus in this moment, my whole life is on the table because maybe there are things that I don't want to surrender to you, but I'm going to surrender it now. Here's my whole life. Do with me whatever you want me to do. I'm a blank check. Seriously. Not tomorrow. Right now. Would you be willing to say that to him? It's like, what's he going to call me to do? I don't know. I'm not sure. That's his business. But your job is to give him everything. 90% doesn't work with Jesus. 95 isn't good enough. He says, I want it all or I don't want any." And I'm telling you, there are so many people, so, so many people that think that they are followers of Jesus. And he's saying, only I have all of you. You give me the parts you want to give me. But you're not really a follower. This king is so great, he's worth giving him it all. And I want us to ask ourselves, have we done that? Or in this moment, are we saying, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. True repentance and Belief looks like giving him everything. Here's the second thing we see that they did. Listen, they didn't just leave their old life. They were like, they left their family ties. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 20. It says, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Hey, if you're, if you're Zebedee, what are you thinking? Really? I mean, we got a business going on, and you're just walking off? But the king and his kingdom were a higher priority than their family ties. I want you to hear this. Someone who has repented and believed says, my allegiance to Jesus is higher even than my allegiance to my family. Listen to Luke 14, 26. This is some tough stuff here that Jesus says. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother Brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, are you saying that we're supposed to hate our family? No. He says to honor your father and mother. It obviously tells us in Ephesians 5 to love our wives as Christ loved the church. What's Jesus saying? Listen to this. Our love for Jesus should be so intense that every other love in our life looks like hatred by comparison. You getting that? I love Jesus so much that my love for Ashley looks like hatred by comparison with my love for Jesus. And I want you to hear what he says. He says, if that's not how you want to follow me, you can't be my disciple. That doesn't mean you're like on a different level. It means you can't be saved. And you know, if you follow Jesus the way that he demands, that will often mean problems in your family. Mark 10, 34-36, Jesus says, Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Many, a follower of the king, have found problems with their families. 
because they followed him. Some of these folks that our good brother James has had the opportunity to report on in Mali in a 95% Muslim country will be abandoned by their families for following Jesus. It's my allegiance to him over even my allegiance to my own family. Number three, they left their comfort. I want you to know that these disciples, when the king called them, were not headed for a comfortable life. Did you, did you notice what Mark tells you about John the Baptist? This is the herald of the king. He's taken into custody. So, welcome to ministry, John. And the word for taken into custody or arrested is the word handed over. And here's what Mark's doing. Don't miss this. He's setting a pattern for what's going to happen in the life of Jesus and in the life of everyone who follows him. Because that's the same word handed over that's used for Jesus in Luke 9, or Mark 9.31. Listen to this. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. He's being delivered. By the way, same word that's used of all of Jesus' disciples. Mark 13, 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you, hand you over to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. We're following a Jesus who says stuff like this. If anyone wishes to come after me, what's he say? Deny himself. Take up your cross and follow me. We're following a Jesus who says stuff like that. Do you know that Mark is writing this to people likely who are, un, who are in the persecution of Nero? They're familiar with it. These are Christians that Mark is writing to who are familiar with having other Christians lit on fire to light the streets. They know what it's like to be called not into comfort, but into persecution. And listen, here's what Paul says. If we are children, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Here's what David Platt says. He said, the road that leads to heaven is risky, lonely, and costly in this world, and few are willing to pay the price. Following Jesus involves losing your life and finding new life in Him. Repenting and believing is saying, Jesus, you're worth it all, even if it means suffering, because it absolutely does if I follow you. Did you notice that they left immediately? Look at Mark chapter 1, 18 to 20. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Verse 20, immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away and followed him. That's the same way Matthew responds when Jesus calls him. Listen, when the king came to them, there was no weighing of options. No like, well, you know, I might do this or I might do this. Because the king had come and there was only one response to the king. It is immediate obedience. Listen to William Lane. He says, Jesus proclaims the kingdom not to give content, but to convey a summons. 
He stands as God's final word of address to man in man's last hour. Either a man submits to the summons of God, or he chooses this world and its riches and honor. The either-or character of this decision is of immense importance and permits of no postponement. This is what repentance is all about. He says, Jesus stands in the last days and says, follow me or don't, but do it now. Because when the king comes, there's no weighing of options. It's immediate obedience. I want to tell you, um, this might help just give a little bit of context. The Sea of Galilee was not big. It was about seven miles by 13 miles. Not a huge place, but it was a place of a thriving business. There were a big variety of fish there. In fact, there would have been tons of fishermen there. I actually find it kind of strange that this passage is where we ended up this week when we took a trip down to Louisiana to take Haddon fishing. And I want to tell you, there's a lot of people at the marina, tons of folks out there. At the Sea of Galilee, there were tons of folks. And it was not customary for a rabbi to go look for his disciples. It was more customary for them to sort of seek out a rabbi. So Jesus comes to a place where there are tons of people, and he goes to them and chooses them out of the masses. What would be the response to the king of the universe coming to you and singling you out of the masses and saying, follow me? That's what he did with you. If you are a follower of Christ in this room, Jesus has come to you and called you out of the mass of humanity and said, you follow me. John chapter 15, 16, it says, you didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. He came to the mass of humanity and chose you and called you out. What a privilege it is to follow the King. What kind of response does that merit? Immediate obedience. They left blindly. Did you notice that Jesus never told them where they were going? There's no directions. It's just follow me. A lot of times, whenever a rabbi would have pupils, the pupils would follow the law under the tutelage of the rabbi. Jesus says, no, 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 you follow me. Because I'm the personification of the law. And when Jesus is teaching on the law in Matthew 5 to 7, he gets to this one verse in Matthew 6, that says this, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know what Jesus is saying? Your job is not to figure out where provision is coming from. Your job is not to figure out the address. Your job is not to figure out where we're going. Your job is to follow me. I'm not telling you where we're going. Keep your eyes on the king. We are afflicted with a desire to know where we're going, don't we? Jesus says, that's not your business. Your business is to follow me. Here's the last thing that I want you to see. Repentance and belief looks like leaving on mission. They left on mission. When Jesus calls them, it's for the purpose of a kingdom mission. Look at what he says in Mark 1.17, and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. As soon as someone truly follows Jesus in repentance and faith, he goes about the business of making them a missionary. 
Listen to this quote. The call included Jesus' promise. I will make you to become fishers of men. He had caught them for His kingdom. Now He would equip them to share His task to become fishers who catch men. And I want you to know, there is only one requirement to be a kingdom ambassador. It is knowing the king. It's not having a seminary degree. It's not being some great theologian. There is a Samaritan woman who stands as witness. Jesus goes through and meets her at the well. Why is she there at noon, the hottest part of the day? Because she has a terrible reputation and does not want to be seen by anybody else who is coming from her town because they know she is on her sixth husband. She doesn't have true religion. She's a Samaritan. She's uneducated. She has one thing. She meets the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're my ambassador. Go back to Sychar. And listen to what John 4.39 says. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in Him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. And they come to Jesus and many more believe because of His word. He says, there's only one requirement for being a kingdom ambassador. It's knowing the king and I equip you. You know what we do when Jesus calls us? We do the mission by doing what he did. Listen to Mark 3.14. He appointed the twelve so that they would be with them and he could send them out to preach. Mark 6.12. They went out and preached that men should repent. Mark 13.10. The gospel must be preached first to, must first be preached to all nations. They went out to proclaim. Listen, please, don't miss this. No matter how much good we ever do for people, if we are not proclaiming the gospel to them, we are not doing the mission. Preaching proclamation of the gospel does not happen right here alone. Oh, this is important. Feeding the flock is important. But proclamation happens out there. Did you notice that Jesus says they went out to preach? He sent them out to preach? I want you to know, when I was at the marina, we went three days fishing. There was not a single morning that we were standing there that the fish swam into the marina and got in our net. Surprisingly. We waited for a while the first morning to see if it would happen. It doesn't happen. And I want to tell you, they're not coming. Brian sent me an um, interesting statistic this week from the conference that he attended. This was one of the breakout sessions. Maybe you'll find this interesting too. It says, Dr. Wessinger's globally recognized research reveals that 72% of church-raised millennials state they will not return to the church in its current form. That's pre-pandemic. What was it after? 85%? 84% afterwards. 84% of millennials say they will not return to the church in its current form. What about Gen Z? Gen Z, the next generation. What about the generation after that? Folks, listen, it's getting dark outside. It's getting more and more secular outside. It's getting more and more post-Christian outside. They are not coming. We must go to them and share the truth and bring them into the family. That's what the mission is about. And this is the king's method for expanding the kingdom. And listen, this must happen urgently because don't miss the imagery here. Jesus doesn't say, I'll make you fishers of men just because they're fishermen. 
This is an Old Testament image all throughout the Old Testament in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Habakkuk of God being the fisher of men in judgment. When Jesus says, I want to make you fishers of men, he's saying the judgment of God is coming. Go get them before it's too late. William Lane says this, it is this understanding which provides the key both to the urgency in Jesus' summons of Simon and Andrew and to the radical obedience they displayed in responding to his call. Listen, the summons to be fishers of men is a call to the eschatological task of gathering men in view of the forthcoming judgment of God. It extends the demand for repentance in Jesus' preaching precisely because Jesus has come, fishing becomes necessary. God says there will be a day when judgment will fall on this earth and you do not know when it is coming. So I'm sending you before that day. Be fishers of men. Jude says, draw them out like brands plucked from a fire. Does eternity ever sweep over you to the point where you realize what hell would be like for somebody who's there? I remember it came over me one time. I nearly got physically sick thinking about what hell will be like for those who are enduring it. And he is saying, I'm calling you out. Listen, Jesus came to bring the kingdom. And he preached the gospel to invite us into the kingdom. What does it look like to repent and believe? It looks like leaving your old life leaving your allegiance to everything else that is over Him, leaving your comfort. It looks like leaving immediately. It looks like leaving blindly and following Him. And it looks like leaving on mission. And I want to ask us, are we willing to do that? This is the call of Jesus to us. And He says either you're all in or you're all out, but you can't be in the middle. So here's what I want to ask us to do as we close tonight. I just want to ask us to have a time of prayer where we say, Jesus Yes. To whatever it means for my life, whatever it means for my family, whatever it means for this church, whatever it means. I just want us to have a time of prayer and then I'm going to pray over us and we'll be done. Lord, only, only you know where every heart is right now in this room. But I pray Oh God, I plead with you that you would break us. And Jesus, I want to say we're yours. Lord, let us as a church be all in. We want to follow you 100%. You're the king. You bring in the kingdom. You've called us in. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace what it looks like to be radically obedient to You, given the fact that You are the King of the universe. Oh God, please, 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 for everybody here, would You please do that? And God, would You do things through us by the power of Your Spirit, both personally and in our families and as a church, that are beyond what we could even ask or imagine or think. May it be, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If you have questions about this message or Grace Bible Church, email us at info at gbclakeland.org or visit us online at gbclakeland.org.